Welcome to the No Plateau Podcast. For stroke and brain injury survivors, their caregivers, and the therapists helping them to break boundaries in their recovery journey. Hosted by Henry Hoffman, occupational and clinical therapist, this podcast is intended to supplement stroke and brain injury survivors' recovery journey. Therefore, all content affiliated with this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. And now, here's Henry Hoffman. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the No Plateau Podcast. I am your host, Henry Hoffman. I'm thrilled to be with you today. Today, we are going to talk about activity-based therapy for spinal cord injury and neurologically impaired population. Many of us heard of task-specific training or task-oriented training, um, but what about ABT or activity-based therapy? So to help me uh, discuss and digest this topic, I've invited Darcy Pernot, who is an OT and owner of Back to Independence Rehab in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, her clinic is a gym model uh, approach for neuro and spinal cord injury patients. And a big part of her treatment is activity-based therapy. So we are excited to have her uh, to discuss this topic today. Welcome, Darcy. How are you? Thanks, Henry. Glad to be here. Good, good. Well, I'd like to start off with you sharing with the audience. We have patients and therapists and caregivers listening in. And if you could just start off uh, sharing a little bit about yourself and your professional background. How about we start there? I've been an OT for over 18 years. I started out initially and kind of followed the the same continuum of care that our newly injured neuro clients do when they have a traumatic injury. So I started out as an inpatient rehab and was in and out of the ICU a little bit. I worked through a day program and and then an outpatient and did some post-op work and some upper extremity limb lab uh, data collection. Uh, predominantly, most of my clients were spinal cord injured. Uh, my first position as an OT, I was the dual diagnosis therapist. So my clients had both a spinal cord injury and a brain injury. Uh, so I cross-trained to work on the brain injury unit. And a lot of our, our brain injured client base also could have had a stroke. A big background in, in neuro rehab from the hospital all the way outpatient. And then uh, my husband's job relocated us away from my therapy family, and I found myself having people kind of find me uh, in the community. So then I got more community integrated, seeing people at their homes or in the community. And uh, I, I started networking a little bit with a, a, a gym that used to exist in the Charlotte area that was an activity-based therapy gym. And unfortunately, during COVID, they closed. And uh, I pitched the idea to my husband about, well, why don't I take this on? And he, he surprised me with the speed of return in response to say, sure, do it. So uh, here we are two years later. Uh, I'm a, a gym owner and trying to help the, the community who's experienced a neuro uh, diagnosis have a, a community gym, a place of health and wellness, and see how we can help them wherever they are in their recovery journey. Well, that is awesome. Well, we're, we're lucky to have folks like you around. So uh, we know neurological uh, injuries are going to continue to occur, and it's important to have the latest information and research available to help these folks. Uh, before we dive into activity-based therapy, because to be honest with you, I was still kind of confused what exactly it was. I know I primarily focus on stroke, and you typically don't see a lot of articles discussing stroke interventions with activity-based therapy. It's usually mingled in with task-oriented training or task-specific training. But So what I'd like to do uh, for the audience uh, especially the patients and families, just take a step back. And, and I, I know a majority of these, uh, from what you said, a majority of these uh, clinics see a lot of uh, spinal cord patients. Just a brief description of spinal cord injury. Some people get confused with what incomplete is, complete. What are the common impairments that you would see? We spend a lot of time on the podcast going over stroke impairments. I think it'd be refreshing just to take a few minutes to talk about spinal cord injury itself. And then we'll dive right into activity-based therapy, if you're okay with that. Sure. So with a spinal cord injury, uh, there's some type of damage to your spinal cord anywhere from the top of your neck down to the, to the base of your spinal cord. And so a complete injury means that you don't have sensory and motor accurately to uh, give your body sensory information and motor response. Uh, an incomplete injury, there's different levels of complete and incompleteness, and also people can change their spinal cord categorization. Uh, and so that can, it can change because of time. There's a lot of swelling around the spinal cord initially, 
So with new injuries, uh, there's usually a baseline Asia uh, testing given, and then usually when people go home, they'll do another assessment test. And there's more likeliness with some levels of complete or incomplete to change over time. But there's such a, a wide variety of spinal cord injuries. So there's complete, there's not accurate information given back to the spinal cord for sensory and motor. There's sensory incomplete, which would be an Asia B, and that means that clients are accurate with their sensory um, information their body's interpreting. And then there's motor incomplete, which means that there's motor function below their level of injury. And then there's two different types of motor incomplete. There's one where you're going to have uh, strengths that aren't, won't, be, won't be able to go against gravity as much, which is an Asia C. And then in Asia D, the amount of motor return below that spinal cord injury is going to be stronger. So that's going to be someone who you see walking after a spinal cord injury more likely. And I like to tell my students and my trainers in the gym that no spinal cord injury is alike. 18 years out, I'm still seeing so many different unique presentations. So it's very important that each individual is treated as an individual because even though I'm going to have 20 people that are gym users that all have a C5, a cervical level 5 injury or the spinal cord injury survivors, they might be walking with a walker, they might be in a power chair, they might be in a manual chair, or they might be kind of splitting up how they function and all those different um, mobility and have different levels of function, sensory and motor uh, presentation. Got it. Thank you for that description. And you mentioned uh, during the acute stage, and then over time it may change, you know, analogous to ischemia and the umbra or the, or the lesion area of the brain that dies following a stroke. But let's say the stroke is 10 to 12 hour event. And during that time, the lesioned area dies off. It's not coming back. And then they have the penumbra, the surrounding area. And that's the area we're focusing on for spontaneous recovery, you know, trying to add blood flow to that area, get rid of the edema, and then start the, uh, the neuronal connectivity to hopefully have a spontaneous recovery. And that takes, according to Dramrick, it could take a couple months. Does that occur in spinal cord injury? Are you ever going to have a spontaneous recovery? And what does that look like? And is it less common than stroke survivor spontaneous recovery? Because I can tell you that's not too common either. So uh, what can you share about that? So with spinal cord injury in general, the old theory or what people are generally taught is that usually within two years as you see the most change. But I'm also suspicious as where is that information coming from? I feel like most people target their recovery within the first two years. I also think that's what insurance helps is within the first two years. Um, and I think that's when most data is allowed to be collected through research is to follow people for two years. I've seen people who've been further out that definitely are making changes and gains. And I think the amount of time and exercise and fitness and access to healthcare professionals to help you progress is going to help you make those changes over time. So that's, that's a very tricky question to answer. Usually you see the swelling come down off the spinal cord injury, you know, for a few months. I've seen changes up to a year that's been pretty significant with the swelling coming down. And that's the medical justification I've heard healthcare providers give people as where the changes was coming from in the response. And why do they, and maybe this is becoming more and more popular again, this is just because I don't treat spinal cord patients, the ice treatments. Do you know anything about, I remember, I'll never forget, I'm a Buffalo Bills fan. Uh, admittedly, and proud of it. And I remember, gosh, it's probably 2000, early 2000s, where there was a spinal cord injury on the field uh, with a special teams player. And they treated him with, you know, just packs of ice. I don't know. I'm sure there's fancy technology for that now. And it was amazing how that changed the course and the trajectory of his recovery. Are you familiar with the hospitals that you worked at or the trauma centers? Is that something that's now considered standard practice? Or is that, if, if you're lucky enough to be in that zip code, you might get that type of treatment. I am not up to date on the latest research for what happens immediately. I'm more in the rehab world. Once clients are medically stable, able to get out of their bed, they've had their their spine fusions to, to help with whatever trauma happened to their, their spinal cord orthopedically. So I see people afterwards, but I do have to say what I've learned from my mentors and my therapist friends who've practiced ahead of me is that the amount of incomplete spinal cord injuries and the amount of people recovering is great, a great deal changed from where we are today than where we were 
20, 30, 40 years ago. There's much more incomplete injuries, uh, more people walking. I think it has a lot to do with, you know, continued research, continued thought process, how to push people hard. It's a very hot topic. I feel like right now in the rehab world is higher intensity, pushing people harder to help create that change and drive home that neuroplasticity. And so I'm I'm hopeful with the awesome things that you promote in your podcast and with therapy where it is in, in today's world and pushing research is to help encourage healthcare professionals and people who've experienced injuries to know that it's okay to push themselves hard. And that's actually what they should be doing. So it's important that people know, push hard, work on your recovery. If you wait and wait and see, it's not always going to just come together. You need to stimulate your body to create that change. And there's some great tips and ideas and people out there to help facilitate that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, great. Thank you very, very much for that. All right. Let's switch gears over to activity-based therapy. Why don't we start off with Darcy just explaining what the heck is this? What is ABT? Activity-based therapy is a way to drive home neuroplasticity, how to help people's bodies heal after uh, some type of damage to the central nervous system. So our central nervous system is our brain and our spinal column. And so after a spinal cord injury, when there's been trauma to the spinal cord itself, it will have swelling initially. As that goes down, there's our body's ability to reconnect through that damage. We can have collateral sprouting where the spinal cord can connect around that scar tissue and try to reconnect and get get parts of our body back on board to help feel and move and function better. And so activity-based therapy has some main principles on how to do that with getting people up in weight-bearing positions uh, and that can be in, in standing and kneeling and quadruped, different places to put weight through our body to help uh, stimulate bone development, to keep our bones strong, to help our muscles co-contract, uh, to strengthen for better stability, to lengthen, to promote range of motion. And I like to tell a lot of people, um, if you think about how we develop as children or as babies, we're going to wiggle around on the floor, we're going to gain head control. We're going to work on rolling, then we're going to work on coming to sit, work towards crawling, and then walking. And so a lot of the foundation of therapy and activity-based therapy is treat our bodies as how we're trying to develop through mobility, strengthen, uh, gain bone density, help teach our body through those movement patterns. So a lot of activity-based therapy is those weight-bearing positions, moving through those different movements, and then also utilizing therapy principles to use e-STEM to help facilitate neuroreeducation of muscles and strengthening uh, in different movement patterns, task-specific movements. We need lots and lots of repetition to drive home that neuroplasticity, which is teaching our body to be plastic and moldable, uh, the whole use it or lose it. We need to challenge our body to use our bodies more to create change, reconnection, uh, to hopefully get stronger and increase our function. Okay, great. So I was taking some notes because I want to make sure I I got it all. So would the main pillars be definitely doing some type of task-specific or task-oriented training, incorporating modalities like electrical stimulation, obviously strength training, and weight-bearing? Are, are those the four main pillars of activity-based therapy? Did I miss something or is that pretty solid? I, I did miss one. So the other one would be locomotor or reciprocal movement patterning. So that could be something like walking, getting on a treadmill, use the use of body weight devices to get someone on a treadmill, or sometimes we'll use different positioning or assistive motors to get people in crawling to activate that core strengthening, the weight bearing through the movement pattern, but that reciprocal movement uh, with the arms and the legs. So they've done research studies where they transected a cat's spinal cord, put them on a treadmill, and there's something called central pattern generators that are in our, our central nervous system, in our brain and our spinal cord. And by getting that reciprocal movement pattern, we can target the innate ability for our bodies to have some stepping movement. Right. And so targeting those neuroplasticity principles, you can make gains. I'm trying to compare this to traditional concepts back in the 90s and the 80s and the 70s and what were the OTs doing for spinal cord, which I do want to, I'm curious to get your opinion on that since you've been doing this a, a little bit too. Clearly weight bearing is important. Loading is important. You got you to gotta do that for many reasons, uh, for the joints and bone density and health. You would think strengthening is important. I always used to say, you know, back in the day, uh, Christopher Reeve, he was at our hospital at Burke when I was there. And I remember he was getting Eastim in every muscle group, like six hours a day. And it made sense. I mean, if there was ever going to be a cure, you'd want to be able to take advantage of that cure, whether it's spinal cord, stroke, you name it. 
And the last thing you want to be is atrophied and contracted. And then there's this wonderful, beautiful cure wrapped in a bow that you can't take advantage of. And I think that's what Christopher Reeve was, was prepping for at that time. So I can see why strengthening is going to be important. The yeast stem is, is a catalyst for strengthening, if you will. I think that's evident. Of course, you could also use that for functional electrical stimulation, whether it's for walking or using your arm or hand. And functional electrical stimulation, for the folks listening that are not aware, that's when you time the yeast stem with a functional task versus just regular neuromuscular electrical stimulation, which is on for so many minutes or seconds and off for so many seconds. So it's a ramp on and off cycle. And then task-oriented training makes a ton of sense because you're talking about neuroplasticity. Some of the therapists listening know Climb and Jones' article, which go over the 10 principles of neuroplasticity, making sure it's meaningful, or also known as salient, repetitive, uh, challenging, you know, all the, all the key critical elements to rewiring your brain. And then, of course, you mentioned locomotor. Yeah, that reciprocal movement, walking is key. That's why I like, we'll get into it later, but the exoskeleton devices or the bodyweight support devices. So now let's go down memory lane for a second. All right. Now, when did you graduate? 2005. Okay. In 2005, were they doing, and were you, when did you start doing spinal cord? 2006. I graduated in December. Were they actively promoting activity-based therapy then? I don't know the exact year that it, it kind of started getting big. It would have been within the next five years because my roots are from Shepherd Center in Atlanta and they had a gym that they were developing and they had an activity-based therapy program where they were using the, the East End, the FES bikes to help drive home neuroplastic changes and all the other benefits that go along with the East End bikes. Um, and there was some other gyms that started popping up. Yep. Yeah. A lot of people wanted more than what therapy was able to give them. And so we started noticing these changes of people lifelong having this fitness background and extra activity, utilizing some neuro rehab principles. And so from when I was a new therapist, we just didn't have the time to address it. We had to do function-based things. I was an inpatient. It was rehab 101. You have this new injury. You have to be ready to be prepared for a new normal and also hopefully give you some some guidelines on how you continue to improve and get stronger and function. But we weren't able to utilize activity-based therapy. There were That was kind of a continuum of care down the road. If we can include it somewhat inpatient with the timeline that people were allowed to use it as, as well as when someone has a new spinal cord injury, most likely it's traumatic. So there's a lot of pain associated with it. People are in different neck collars or back braces. So sometimes people just can't do as much as they they would otherwise or what people can do after they're out of the hospital back at home or living on their own or a different facility. Yeah, I remember when I was at Burke Rehab Hospital and I worked on the spinal cord unit, you had to go through all the different units as you traverse through your way of your career uh, before you get to outpatient. So I did probably six months on a spinal cord injury unit. And I remember, you know, you had the pulleys, you could do strengthening with wrist cuffs, you had an arm bike, Eastim was not used as much as it should have been. And there definitely wasn't technology to help them get the walking in that they need. It was just starting to come out, the robotic technologies. So I can see that there was probably 60% of activity-based therapy was probably being done, but not 100%. Now, I know, I know that's different. So let's shift gears and actually talk about, as you go from acute to inpatient, you said Shepherd, pick the hospital, were restricted by insurance. So what is considered the guidelines as of today? How many hours per day of therapy will a spinal cord patient get in a hospital setting? Now, spoiler alert, it's not enough, and they're going to need folks like you. But before we get to the gym outpatient model, what is the current expectation if you suffer a spinal cord injury and you go to the leading spinal cord hospital in the country? What is the best care you're going to get from a standpoint of frequency and duration and time? So to be on rehab status, you need to be able to tolerate three hours of therapy. And I kind of mentioned an inpatient, some people have had horrible accidents. They're in a lot of pain. They're dealing mentally with a whole different change of just understanding their physical capabilities are very different. So three hours might just be trying not to pass out and sit up and deal with your blood pressure, with pain management. There's a lot of neurogenic bound bladder so a lot of people will not feel as well for lots of different reasons. So three hours is the baseline, but for them to physically be able to perform at three hours a day can be challenging. 
especially someone's on a ventilator and trying to just work on breathing, that's like trying to train for a marathon. And then to try to move your limbs at the same time and to be able to breathe and function is a lot. So Shepherd Center does an amazing job. I know everyone can't be a Shepherd Center or a model center. Um, I think a lot of the model centers do amazing work with the time that they're allowed. They can get those three hours. There's extra people who can do extra training. It's been exciting to see how exercise physiologists are being incorporated into the medical model so that they can help with the stretching, the range of motion, the strengthening, so that therapists can do more of the the re-education, the physical things to kind of bring another uh, healthcare professional into the mix in the medical model. So if you're saying if we go to the, the perfect system or my, my roots, they can get people more than three hours. I know that's not common. And if someone is physically able to tolerate more, I have seen four or five hours a day. And if you have an awesome caregiver who can physically help assist you, they can be doing extra things, helping you push the halls, utilize different equipment that the therapist will train them on as they're appropriate. So a minimum of three hours in an ideal perfect setting, they're getting five hours plus, but that's if they're feeling up to it, if pain's not an issue and everything else. Let me compare this to stroke for a second when you think about hospitals. My frustration, if you listen to any of the podcasts or listen to any of my LinkedIn posts or read read them rather, one of the common themes that I have and it's very frustrating is uh, when the patients get admitted and they're going into therapy, our profession, our OTs, are embracing compensatory strategies. And we're teaching patients to be independent one-handed so they can get dressed to improve their FIM score, their, their ADL performance, because we know that we're only going to see them for two to three weeks. Little do we know that's causing neuronal cell death, because as we continue to ignore their impaired side and focus on their healthy side, the, the cells start to prune away and die, the networks. So it's a very frustrating problem that exists at a lot of facilities. Maybe it's me, but I feel like the spinal cord therapists are in a better position to do science-based treatment and are not making these critical mistakes that the stroke therapists are making. Or I'm crazy and it's happening everywhere. So I guess my question to you is, yeah, if you're at the, for a stroke patient, if you go to a very top-notch stroke, say the art stroke center, you may get mirror therapy, mental practice, e-stim, you know, forced use, and we're not going to spend a ton of time teaching compensatory strategies, but that's like less than 5%. Can you say the same thing for a spinal cord facility? Or for spinal cord, it's a different story. These therapists know the guidelines. They stick to the guidelines. If you go to a top 50 hospital that treats spinal cord patients, chances are you're not going to be pulling your hair out because they're doing things that were like 30 years old that are no longer proven effective. Is that occur or is it different for spinal cord? I think there's a combo approach And I'll tell you the biggest limiting factor is length of stay. There's that quick rush to train people with the knowledge of how to be safe, to be able to live safely and not be rehospitalized. They need to understand how to care for their body with bowel and bladder, with skin needs, so they're not going to be rehospitalized. So if you only get three weeks to treat someone, how to totally do everything different. And again, I mentioned if they had a traumatic injury, they're dealing with pain, lots of different medications on board. Some people have a spinal cord and a brain injury, so they're trying just to work on memory and retaining all the information, dealing with everything else. I think spinal cord therapists do a combo approach. You have to learn what you can use at that time to be functional. So they're going to be teaching functional tasks, how to learn how to take care of yourself before discharge and training your family members or caregivers to take you home and be safe. And hopefully with the time that they have someone in rehab also do the neuroplasticity, neuroreeducation principles. So I think it's maybe a better blend than what you've, you've kind of experienced in the stroke world, but there is a give and take with how much time you're given to address things because there's that kind of ticking clock with how many visits do you keep for someone. And I've unfortunately experienced the difference between different hospital settings I've seen people are able to stay longer at certain places than others. And so the therapist just, their hands are tied with what they're able to teach people and how they can teach them and train them in therapy. So it's, it's a juggle. Well, what is the actual length of stay on average for a spinal cord patient? I mean, what what do you typically see? I know for stroke, it's like two to three weeks max. I feel like that's not enough time for spinal cord, certainly. So is that the same case? 
I think sometimes a little bit of level of injury can affect the length of stay, how sick someone is, how traumatic their injury was, what their insurance provider is. And I think there are some amazing, amazing healthcare providers that are case managers, doctors, therapists that will go to bat to ask for more length of stay. I have a family member who was supposed to be discharged after two, three weeks, and her daughter was a high quadriplegic level of injury, had very little arm movement. And the mother did not feel comfortable being discharged because she didn't know how to manage her bowel and bladder, her skin, how to get her safely in and out of the bed. So she... She kind of put a big stink up, and I'm so glad that she did. She's an amazing advocate for her family. And so she got two more weeks because it would not have been a smooth transition. And that is something that's helpful for family members to know and that hopefully they're getting the proper training. Because if you send someone home and doesn't know how to take care of themselves, they're going to be rehospitalized. And um, skin sores are a very real and scary thing. And so if someone's not comfortable with uh keeping their their skin healthy, dry, and intact, they're going to be rehospitalized and a sore can lead to to a huge length of stay. So sometimes knowing the right way to advocate for yourself to make sure the insurance provider understands that they're going to be paying out less if they can do a little bit more training and access to therapy for the family members and the client. They're going to be able to hopefully stay a little bit longer, but that's not always the case. But I do encourage anyone, if they're in those early phases, to really make sure they can get as much training and be integrated into the rehab uh, nursing and therapist world, because they're going to kind of have to fill those those spaces once they leave. So when they leave the inpatient hospital, are they then going typically to home or somewhere else immediately after discharge? So if we're saying we're in a perfect world, you're in a hospital system that has a day program, those are very limited from what I know of in the country. So for most people, they're going to be going home, hopefully not a nursing home, uh, and their family member's been trained to know how to care for them, and they'll have home health to come out to kind of start the next phase of therapy, or if the family has transportation abilities, be able to go to that rehab facility that has expertise in spinal cord injury to understand how to help guide someone through the recovery process and understand the specialty of neuro rehab and how to do that. Um, a lot of people are limited because they're now a wheelchair user and they don't have access to transportation. Um, depending where you live, you might have some public transportation in the bigger cities. And then some places, if you have an ideal setup, there's a day program that you can either uh, drive to and commute for therapy during the week or that you will have um, transportation or there are some great places that will provide some housing if you live out of town. And so that you can get some day. Pro- and so what day program is, is an intensive rehab program where you can have therapy Monday through Friday, at least three hours a day. If there aren't those day programs, then there's usually outpatient where you can go to PT and OT just for a few hours a week, might be two or three days a week for so many weeks. But definitely with neuro rehab, as you and I know, neuroplasticity is all about repetition, intensity, so that more is better. in in the therapy world if you can have access to it. Right. So with your clinic, Back to Independence Rehab, what is the average onset post-injury for your clients? When do they come see you typically throughout the journey of this recovery process? Is it, you know, a couple months post-injury or is it typically years? When you first get that new admission, how many months, years post-injury are they typically? We have a very wide array. Ideally, they're here a few months afterwards. I like for our clients to know that we're a community resource because we are health and wellness, neuroplasticity training. Uh, We are not insurance-based therapy. So I always encourage our clients to maximize their outpatient visits, utilize their insurance benefits, get that awesome skilled care from your therapists and stay as long as you can. But with neuroplasticity and targeting the body's ability to create change for the better, intensity is better. And so activity-based therapy gyms around the country have been around for quite a while, but we're not hugely widespread. It's a very unique niche. And so because we're not covered by insurance, it, it does get expensive. And so that's kind of another limiting factor to accessing additional services outside of the insurance-based world. And so if our clients can fundraise, utilize some amazing grants around the country to um, or self-pay for additional services, 
uh, more practice, more repetition is ideal. And I think the big difference between seeing outpatient therapy and an activity-based therapy gym is that in therapy, you're held attainable typically by your third-party payers. Insurance wants to see functional outcomes. They want to see certain uh, measures are being met. And so, unfortunately, therapists, again, are kind of have their hands tied for how much they can do, how much they can intervene until insurance won't allow any more visits. And they also have to utilize, typically, like you mentioned before, with stroke survivors, teaching people what they have functional and what they're moving more to address in therapy goals. Where with activity-based therapy, it doesn't matter what's moving or not, uh, what they can actively move, we're trying to target not only what they can use, but what's not working right now. We're addressing below their level of injury. So if they don't have leg movement or trunk activated, we want to see how we can stimulate the body to create that change, see what and maximize what the body's potential is. Right. So it sounds like everyone meets the criteria for activity-based therapy, unless you don't have the cognitive ability. Even if, I mean, if you, have, if you don't have the cognitive ability to follow commands, let's say it's a brain injury slash spinal cord patient, there are still some things you could be doing under the umbrella of activity-based therapy with them. So it seems like everyone qualifies. All right. So we talked about activity-based therapy as far as what it is. What are some of the ultimate benefits? Or maybe a better way to say it is, can you give us an example of a classic, you know, positive testimonial of one of your patients who came in and describe what you did with them to get those results just so the audience understands, okay, look, if, if you go to a clinic or a gym where there's an occupational therapist and a team, here are the things that this person is going to be going through and here are the outcomes that one may be able to receive. If you can share that, it'd be great. Well, just to kind of review, we all need to be exercising. As human beings, we need to be active to live healthier, to live better, to live longer. And so for just the typical person, Henry, do you know how much we should be exercising a week? Um, per day or per total per week or percentage? Per week. Per week. Per week. Um, in hours? I want to try to nail this one. In hours or percentage? Okay. okay. Hours? Hours. Sorry? Okay. Hours, Wait, minutes. My waking hours is, let's see, 12 hours. Let's see, seven. seven. Well, no, probably 16, 17 hours. Five. I'm going to say 35 hours. So we want to get at least 150 minutes a week of cardiovascular training. Oh, geez. That's it? So, so I have a chance. Uh, you have a chance. Yeah. So we want to ideally be doing 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous intensive workout to get our heart rate up, to help with circulation, to help be at our best for respiratory training, to help increase our metabolism. So that's what we want to do cardiovascular. And then we need to be doing resistance training at least two or three times a week, okay. um, at least 30 minutes or more to target the major muscle groups in our body to, to be strong, to have better posture, to maximize what we're doing to, to, again, live better, feel better and function better and live longer. So with that 150 minutes of cardiovascular training and resistance training a week, that's for able-bodied people who haven't had an injury or... Um, some type of medical need. Now, Henry, do you know how much someone with a disability needs to be exercising? Probably five times as much because they're sitting all day. <laughs> Drive neuroplasticity. Uh, yes, exactly. You and I my would brain, probably say yes. My brain is always geared towards thousands and thousands and thousands. <laughs> yeah, I love it. So no matter what your abilities are, everyone needs to be working out the same amount. And that is by the recommendations from the Center for Disease uh, the CDC, the World Health Organization, no matter what your abilities are, you still need to have cardiovascular health. You need to have resistance training to target your muscular strength. And that's going to help us live longer, live better, and to function better. And so with our clients and our community members, no matter after a stroke, after a spinal cord injury, they need to be working out just like anyone else. Now, their abilities to work out and to get that cardiovascular training or to challenge um, the resistance training is going to be unique to everybody. And so sometimes it takes more professional or unique equipment for them to be able to do that. So with activity-based therapy, I kind of wanted to back up just to drive home how much people need to be working out, no matter who they are. Uh, and then the benefits with that exercise training 
uh, with activity-based therapy, getting people out of their chairs, getting them active, getting them weight-bearing, driving home cardiovascular training is going to have better respiratory function, better cardiovascular function, better circulation, better bone density. Um, it's very common for a lot of our wheelchair users to maybe miss a doorway or have a foot twisted and then they have a broken leg. Or maybe they're performing a transfer and they fall on the ground. Well, if they're not maintaining their bone density, it's very likely that they can fracture a limb. That's going to slow them down. It's going to keep them in bed. And, and as we know as therapists, being stuck in the bed is not good for anyone. You're going to atrophy. You're going to get weaker. Your mental health is going to go down. You're not able to socialize, and so your quality of life is greatly changed. And so by applying activity-based therapy principles, that includes our health and wellness exercise measures. It's getting our bone density uh, where it needs to be. It's getting our cardiovascular training where it is. It's getting our muscles stronger for resistance training, which is going to help with posture. So it's going to help people look better. Uh, The benefits of exercise getting circulation, getting all the the right hormones, the growth factors, everything on a cellular level is going to be improved. So people are going to feel better. Their mental health is going to be better. Uh, That's going to affect their quality of life. And then also being in a place of community, an activity-based therapy gym, there's going to be peer support, whether it's for the participants that are working out in the gym, but also their family members or caregivers that come. I love when I have um, family members that are either talking to each other, sharing resources, uh, starting friendships, talking about different services that they found helpful. I have a client that was talking to a mother of one of my teenagers. And so she's been dealing with being a mom of a teen and having to deal with onset of paralysis with her teenager how she's raising her, how it's a new disability for all of them. But having her talk to a gentleman who's also gone through a spinal cord injury, he was kind of commiserating and sharing his stories and encouragement. That's that's what I love most. My, my makes my OT heart so happy to hear people share resources, gain some relationships. And people don't have to be best friends with other people with disabilities and other wheelchair users. But I think there's such a wealth in shared knowledges Um, shared experiences, and just to support each other and cheer each other on. So I think if anyone can find a place of community, there's such benefit in that. And also um, outside of the the peer support, just the camaraderie, there's there's no stigma to coming in here with a leg bag to drain your bladder. Um, A lot of our clients have neurogenic bound bladder. So passing gas when you can't control it doesn't matter. We just roll with it. That's the norm. Someone takes a little bit longer in the bathroom or they need to cancel a session because they're having some other challenges. That's that's the norm here. We understand it. So there's not a fear of embarrassment after people get to know us. And we can say, hey, that's normal. Uh, not a problem. And our, our clients can talk about it with other people. And so I think having a place of community for the peer support, the mental health, the common understanding. And our, and our, our staff know how to keep people healthy. We understand the skin Uh, sensory deficits that can come along with it. So we're going to be careful with how we're adjusting and putting people in equipment or strapping on um, different Velcro devices or putting people in equipment to make sure that they're staying healthy while we're promoting their their neuro recovery and and health and wellness benefits. Wow, that's awesome. That's a great description. And it sounds like, you know, anyone who's in the Charlotte area definitely needs to look you up for sure. Speaking of these gyms, how how popular are these gyms nationwide? Is this something that if there's someone listening right now that has a family member who suffered a spinal cord injury, what's the odds of them in a 90 mile radius finding a gym like yours? If they're in a major city, their chances are going to be higher. There are some therapy practices that will have wellness models. So if there's a therapy practice that has neuro rehab, they might have a wellness model that they could utilize potentially. There is a website, spinalcord.com, and if you search that website for activity-based therapy, they do have a map of different places around the country that offer activity-based therapy that they've kind of gotten to know and approve and kind of give them the stamp of approval in order to help people access facilities and gain knowledge of where they can be found. There's a lot in Florida. There's a lot in California. There's a good handful in, in Texas. But outside of those states, we're usually kind of in a major city. Otherwise... They're hard to find. It is not uncommon for people to drive quite a distance for these facilities. I have a gentleman that comes twice a week from two hours away just to work out. And so he understands the benefits, has good family support, and 
uh, funding to be able to continue to access a specialty gym. But if you're not in a major city, it can be very challenging. There are uh, several gyms that will offer different like travel programs where you can come work out for a week or two or even like a train your trainer. They will train a family member or a community member to come out, have the skill set to know how to help guide someone in activity-based therapy principles, and then kind of take it home. And that's how a lot of these gyms have started. A lot of people would train the trainer, take someone back to their community, and then they wanted to share that that new experience and expertise to other people in the community for all the wonderful benefits and continued recovery training. So my head's going to go down the tele-rehab remote model in a second. But before I get there, uh, one thing I forgot to ask you is the equipment. If you're an OT or PT and you want to start doing activity-based therapy, what are like the common pieces of technology or equipment you you, you really should have to make this successful? What, what stands out for you? Uh, definitely some type of standing device, like a tilt table or a standing frame. And so it's very common in a therapy world, but you're not going to find it outside of a rehab setting unless it's an activity-based therapy center. And that's another important aspect of an activity-based therapy center is we're going to have rehab equipment or unique equipment to get people out of their wheelchairs, to put them in different positions, to challenge their body, to see what kind of gains and maximize the physical potential of their bodies. So if I was grassroots starting something out, um, and of course, unfortunately, cost factor goes in, but a standing frame or tilt table of sorts to get people upright is always awesome. And then really just a gym mat or a mat on the floor to get people out of their chair so that there's, you can do all the gross motor, rolling, moving, stretching, activating, trying to tap into their body with different movement patterns is very, very helpful. And then all the use of e-stem, you can get a small e-stem unit for fairly inexpensive. So people can come up with their own activity-based therapy program to implement when they don't have a local facility. I think guidance of someone to not reinvent the wheel would be awesome. So the use of telehealth to accessing a professional uh, to do the right principles is always going to be helpful so you're not reinventing the wheel. So you could start grassroots and then if you had the budget and funding, there's amazing rehab equipment that sometimes people, they have access to in rehab, but you only have it for a limited point. So some activity therapy gyms have a lot of the, I've seen some with exoskeletons. I've seen some with some great body weight support treadmill training. Having access to a body weight support treadmill system is amazing because it can help people maximize what they can do, adjust the weight that they can put on their feet or even just promote that stepping pattern to tap into neuroplastic principles is very important. But in a rehab setting, we're only able to put people who have insurance coverage and enough strength to get on those pieces of equipment. But at an ABT gym, even if you can't actively move your legs, being upright is important. It's going to help you with your circulation, your blood flow, with bowel and bladder function, uh, maintain your bone density. So there's so many great reasons why to get someone up. And on a treadmill, even if they can't actively move their legs, but they need to be safely facilitated in that. So it does take an expert provider to be able to facilitate that, which is where these gyms are and how beneficial they are for people to utilize. So I, I kind of went small grassroots equipment and then went big because there's such an extreme amount of equipment. And equipment is the big shiny thing that people always want. Equipment is amazing, but I think really if you have the right guidance, the right person to teach you how to do things, you don't always need the big fancy exoskeletons and equipment. It never hurts. The whole community in the recovery journey can still utilize activity-based therapy principles without the big, shiny, fancy, expensive equipment. You know, with stroke survivors, they're always hoping to get their hand back. With spinal cord patients, they're hoping to walk. So is the, you know, you're up to date more than I am with the research. I mean, is it still a pipe dream to think that with the new invasive stimulation devices and what's coming down the pike, can that actually, are, are we seeing progress where there might be a chance because where I'm going at is in a perfect world, why the heck wouldn't you want an exoskeleton or a robotic device for that uh, reciprocal gait pattern training? It's not like you're going to get it at, you know, if you only have a mat, it's not like you're going to be getting it there unless you have a pool or something else that's going to de-weight the client. So with stroke survivors, they still want their hand back. It's We still know neuroplasticity is the way to get it back. And we still know it's a very tough road. Are we seeing progress 
with spinal cord patients with potentially walking. If they are not contracted, not fully atrophied, or are we still in the same situation we were 10, 15, 20 years ago when it comes to if you have an incomplete injury, you know, chances are if you're in a wheelchair year one, you're probably going to be in a wheelchair year five. I think there's amazing things out there right now with research. And unfortunately, research has to be so safe. It's just very slow process. Um, I think it's really exciting where we're coming with exoskeletons. Like you said, it's driving home that neuroplasticity principle. It's just, and they're out there. People can get them, but it's to be able to afford them. How do you fund them? Everything's so expensive in that, that neuro rehab realm. But there's, there's huge changes. They're doing lots of different implant systems. There's stem cell research. There's so much going on. It's exciting to see where people can get. I do have many spinal cord injury survivors who do walk. And the ability to walk is, is such extreme. Maybe they're just walking at home. Maybe they're just standing at the counter in their bathroom at their sink. Maybe they're not, just not going to walk through the airport. I have clients that come in our doors and you'd have no idea that they're going to be a spinal cord injury survivor and working out with us. And they're really just working on how we can safely get them to the next level. Maybe how they want to get back into running a 5K or there's a type of spinal cord injury which affects your arms more than your legs. So I have a client, um, she's actually at the spinal cord stroke survivor. It's more rare, but people can have a stroke at their spinal cord level. And so it presents like a spinal cord injury. And so central cord spinal cord injury affects, uh, usually you've got weaker arms and legs. So she's hiking on the weekends with her boyfriend and you would have no idea that she's a spinal cord injury survivor, but her arms are weaker. And so we work a lot on how to integrate arm recovery, fine motor work so that she could be more functional and independent. So all these different injuries, I think walking is such a exciting time. It's just People are having to wait for the right answers to see what kind of spinal cord stimulators are coming through down the pipeline of research and, and what can kind of either help get their bodies healing and working better or use it as a compensation, a compensatory strategy with maybe maybe they would need an exoskeleton, but it's keeping them upright with all the other benefits to being upright and moving and not being limited to a wheelchair as a mobility device. Um, I definitely say there's exciting things with research. I don't know how quickly we're going to see things accessible because, as we know, everything's limited by funding and research for access. Yep. Yep. No, I get it. I mentioned telerehab earlier. I just want to quickly make a point there. It's hard to do stroke rehab remotely. You have to put your hands on them to either put a device on, get the electrodes in the right spot, maybe want to stretch the shoulder, maybe have some pain. I'm a hands-off therapist, but there's times you're going to need to physically be there to put an apparatus on, whether fitting them with an orthotic, like disable flex to get finger extension assist, and then let them go. The key is letting them go so they can do their movements. How realistic is doing activity-based therapy virtually? You know, clearly you need some equipment. Is that successful or does it have to be more of a hybrid, which is train a trainer, that person comes to visit, you can get them to purchase some equipment, then they go to a local gym and it's a whole process. Or can you just sign someone up for 12 visits and they can be in their living room and do, I mean, they could probably do a modified activity-based therapy, maybe talk two seconds about modified. What's your thoughts on virtual? Does it even exist? And what would that even look like? I think it exists. I think it totally depends on the person and how much they're going to benefit from it. If distance is going to be a limiting factor, I think the amazing thing about technology and telehealth is you can access the right healthcare professional to give you guidance and help facilitate where your goals are and how to address them. It would not be my first pick. I'm a very hands-on therapist. So I think you just have to look at what it, what's, can you, can you pick up and can you move somewhere to access a healthcare professional? Can you afford housing, a caregiver if you need it to have the right care to facilitate your goals? Or is telehealth going to be a better option? So I think the good thing is there's options and then kind of look where is it going to fit for that person. If someone really can't get the movement that you want them to do, you need to have someone who's going to be able to verbally guide you and instruct. So it comes down to the person on each end, their abilities to be able to follow instruction. And I'm, I'm sure as you're familiar, Henry, with neuro reeducation. Sometimes your body doesn't want to move like you want it to move. So you need someone to be hands-on, facilitate, feel the movement, connect to the movement. 
Um, get the visual feedback. What's your body doing? A lot of people think they're moving a certain way and they're not. Um, so those will be limiting factors to a telehealth option. I have some amazing lifelong athletes, people that were active as children, adults, and I can show them what to do and they can do it. So I think it also depends on the person's ability and their body to connect to certain movements. So I think telehealth can be an option. It may not be a great option for everyone, but it's something to consider. Absolutely. And, and a point of clarification, I am hands-off for stroke rehab, but I could certainly see why I would need to be hands-on for spinal cord patients as much as possible. Wow. This was a lot of information you unpacked, Darcy. And it's what, only Tuesday? And now I got to work. And plus I have to exercise 35 hours a week now. I got a lot going on. And by the way, I think I should just do activity-based therapy by myself because who doesn't want a weight bearer, strengthen, do functional tasks? I mean, think about occupational sitting disease. We're sitting, I'm sitting at this desk and we already know if you sit for six to eight hours a day, it's like the equivalent of smoking two packs of cigarettes. It's that bad. So you got to get up, you got to move. And clearly that's some of the things that activity-based therapy is doing. So last parting words from Darcy. So this was a lot of information. Hopefully the therapists and the patients and the families have found this helpful. If people want to learn more about activity-based therapy, as well as learn more about you, where can you point them to? Yeah, we have a website, uh, backtoindependencerehab.com. We also call ourselves BTI Rehab because that's less of a mouthful uh, to, to spell out. So you can find us at btirehab.com. We also have a Facebook and uh, Instagram page. We try to post different videos and images of what we do with clients in the gym. I spoke with my husband and he said, you know what? He knows what we do, but he's like, I don't always understand that these are always people that may be majority of the time in a wheelchair. Uh, so looking at it, I want people to understand it's not just doing gym workouts. All of these clients have had some type of neurological injury, disease, something that's affected them, but we're pushing them hard uh, to be able to create that change and challenge their body to make neuroplastic changes. So um, you can find us online and all of our contact info should be found on a an internet search. Awesome. Well, you're a wonderful OT. Proud to know you. And definitely going to recommend, definitely going to recommend folks your way uh, that are needing your services. And thank you so much for joining the No Plateau podcast today. And I'm sure the audience is going to eat this up. So thank you. All right. Uh, thanks, guys. Until next time, uh, have a good week. Thank you for tuning in to the No Plateau podcast. Please make sure to like and subscribe to stay up to date on more stroke and brain injury recovery stories. The No Plateau podcast is intended to give you an insight into stroke and brain injury survivors' journeys. Any opinions given on this podcast are strictly the individual's and we do not suggest that you necessarily hold the same viewpoints as anyone on this podcast. This podcast is intended to supplement stroke and brain injury survivors' recovery journey. Therefore, all content affiliated with this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Reliance on any information provided by the No Plateau podcast is solely at your own risk.